our ushers come, let me just say that when I'm not with you guys, I miss you. It's good to be home and it's good to be with you all. And I was reminded, when I'm away, I'm always reminded of what a good thing it is to have a church family, a place that you return to again and again, a people that you love and that you enjoy being with and who, you know, rub off on you in the best ways. And hopefully I rub off on you guys in some decent ways too. And it's just good to be back with y'all. I miss you when I'm not here. So I was thinking about, we're going to be in John 3 today, if you got your Bible. John chapter 3 is where we're going to look today. When I was looking at the text this week, it made me think about when I lived in Chicago. Uh, I lived there for three years when I was in seminary, and I used to, whenever friends would come to visit, I'd take them to the Art Institute. Anybody been to the Art Institute in Chicago? All right, a handful, very good. So it's a pretty well-known museum, and in order to get your artwork in this museum, you have to be a pretty big deal. I mean, you have to be like... A well-known artist, you got to pass all these tests. I don't, I don't fully understand the process. But I used to go and I'd take friends there and there were certain pieces of art that, I, art that I really liked. I liked the Impressionists. I really felt like, you know, I'd look at those and I'd think, man, that looks really hard to do. And I was always impressed by it. But then there were other pieces of art that I would look at and I would think to myself, and maybe you've thought this too, I think I could do that. Like what I'm looking at here, I have no clue how it got over all the hurdles that it took to get into this place of prestige because it looks really like someone just took a brush and threw some paint on a canvas and said, here you go. And then I toured the Art Institute with a friend who was an art teacher. And it was really helpful to me because she took me around and all those pieces of art that I would look at and I would say, okay, explain to me how this is good because it does not look good to me, okay? And she would say, well, Trent, what you don't understand is if you see the brush strokes or you see the technical or this or that. And she would explain to me the technicalities that made something really actually hard to do that I thought looked really easy to do. And she would explain to me why this was an excellent piece of art. On some of them, I, we agreed to disagree. But in general, what I realized, here's what I realized after touring the Art Institute with my art teacher friend, is that many of these pieces of art, they didn't lack merit Because I thought they lacked merit, it was my lack of ability to see their merit that was the problem, not their lack of merit in and of themselves. Does that make sense? We're going to look in John chapter 3 today at a pretty familiar term, and the term is born again. The reason I told you the story about the Art Institute is because I think that kind of like I looked at some of those pieces of art and thought, "Uh, they don't seem that great. I think the phrase born again gets used often, at least in our culture, as a way of insulting someone. To be called born again is usually a way that someone is meaning to condescend to you, if they refer to you as that. They either think of you as a religious radical or as someone who is probably not someone they want to spend time around. Oh, those born agains, have you heard this kind of phrasing? And the other thing that I was convicted of as I read this is that I think that often in the church, We who are Christians have shied away from referring to ourselves as people who have been born again. Now, maybe that's not you. Maybe you've used the term all along, well done to you. But I think I hear often a lack of the use of this phrase because we recognize that it carries this cultural weight that is negative with it. But as we look at the text today, what we're going to see is that there is no such thing as a Christian who is not born again. That those two things go hand in hand. When Jesus describes what it means to be his follower, he says it is to be born again. And so the question I want to examine with you today is a really simple one. Is what does it mean to be born again? 
And by that, I don't just mean what's the definition of the term born again, but what are the implications of being born again? What, are, what, is the, what is the meat of this idea? And I want to see if we can't unpack that from what Jesus says in John chapter 3 in a conversation with a man named Nicodemus, who was a religious leader of his day. Now, before we dive in, we're going to read the first 21 verses together, and that's going to be our text today. But before we do that, can I ask you to do something for me? This text is going to hit each one of you in a particular place. Now, I don't know, as I look out at each one of you, where you are with the Lord. But depending on where you are with the Lord, this text is going to do something. And would we agree that when the Scriptures say the Spirit of God is present with us when we gather in the name of Jesus, He's here And he has a way of working in us corporately as a whole, as a church. He also has a way of working in us individually, each one of us. And I recognize, I feel very much like I'm holding a a fragile thing in my hand today as I come to the text. Because I want with great tenderness to say to you, I need you to, to pay attention to what happens in your heart when you hear what the Word of God says today. I need you to pay attention to what happens in your heart when you hear what the Word of God has to say today. Now, some of us have like really, really uh, colorful, emotional language, and we can paint in great detail when we talk about how we feel or how something impacts us. And some of us have words like sad, mad, and bad. And that's okay. If I had a dollar for every time I sat in my office with a guy and said, do you feel sad, mad, or bad? Pick one. And the answer was usually hungry, but it's okay. One of those four things is probably true of you today. I want you to pay attention, whether you have robust emotional language or whether you just have very simple emotional language, I just need you to pay attention to what the Spirit of God is going to move in your heart and in your mind, yes, too, and how He's going to instruct you because it's going to very much depend on how God wants you to move forward with this text what you sense the Spirit of God doing in you as you hear it. And I really mean as you hear the text, not just as you hear my explanation of it, but as you recognize that God moves through His Word, yes? God moves through His Word. It's more powerful than anything I will say to you today. More powerful is God's written Word. And we will read it together, and I will do my very level best to explain it to you so that you can, so we can together understand its meaning. I need you to pay attention to what takes place in your heart. Let's read the first 21 verses together. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 21. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel 
and yet you do not understand these things. Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his deeds have been carried out in God. Okay, this is the word of the Lord. We're going to try and answer this question. What does it mean to be born again? But let's just pray once more as we prepare our minds and our hearts. Lord Jesus, we say with the psalmist, how precious to us are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. We delight to know your mind, and we thank you for your word which reveals it to us. Now our hearts are prepared to receive. So give us what you delight to give us, what you desire to give us. Holy Spirit, come, move and instruct and teach. Thank you that it is your work and that you're glad to do it, and we are glad to worship you as you do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So I want to offer you five ideas, five thoughts about what does it mean to be born again. And the first one we find, we're just going to kind of move through the text here systematically. The first one is this, is that being born again means that our salvation is worked by God and not by us. Let me explain to you what I mean. Now you notice in verse 2 and verse 4 and verse 9, Nicodemus interacts with Jesus And this is an interesting moment. Nicodemus comes to Jesus by night. He's a really well-educated guy. He's a religious leader. He's a teacher among the people of Israel. And yet he seems really confused. Would you agree? So we're not quite clear that Nicodemus is quite as confused as he lets on. Although he is, I think, probably sincere. Nicodemus only shows up a couple places in the scripture. One of the places we find him is at the death and burial of Jesus. He, along with Joseph of Arimathea, is one of the only people, after the disciples have abandoned him, who buries Jesus. Nicodemus does. So there's something about this interaction that's going to that's gonna make a difference in Nicodemus' life. It's going to draw him in. But at the very outset... It's probably not that Nicodemus doesn't understand that Jesus doesn't literally mean someone needs to be physically born again, but he's so incredulous about what Jesus is saying, it's so counter to his worldview that he's at the very least skeptical about what Jesus is saying when he says you must be born again. He probably understands he means that in not in a physical sense, and yet his response is to do what? How can someone enter into their mother's womb again and be born a second time? See, what's going on 
is that Nicodemus's worldview could be described in this way. For Nicodemus, as a Pharisee, as a religious leader, as someone steeped in the law of the Old Testament, Nicodemus's worldview is something like this. A man is the sum of his deeds. That's what a man is. And a man inherits the kingdom of God by having enough righteous deeds and enough obedience to the law to earn entrance into that kingdom. That's how someone gets into the kingdom. The second thing that's shaking Nicodemus a bit here is that Jesus, throughout his ministry, and he doesn't say it directly here, but Jesus paints a very different picture of the kingdom than a Pharisee would have had. To Nicodemus, the kingdom was completely future. It was out there. It was a one-day thing to come about. And Jesus, when he showed up on the earth, said the kingdom is what? Here. Because I'm here. And I am all that God delights in. I am the perfect representation of what God wants to say to the world. That's who I am. And when I'm here, the kingdom has come. And so Nicodemus is kind of rocked on two fronts. One, that this one in front of him represents the very kingdom of God. And then the second is, how does someone enter that kingdom? Well, for Nicodemus, it's by your works. It's what you do. If you do the law, then you will get into the kingdom. And Jesus says, that's not how you get into the kingdom, Nicodemus. There's a fundamental difference in the way Nicodemus sees the world and God and the way Jesus is going to paint God for Nicodemus. Do you follow that? Does that make sense? And so Jesus, and this is so, you're going to notice this as we go through John. If you've read the Gospels, you notice it. Someone comes to Jesus and they say something. Sometimes it's something flattering, like, hey, we know that you're from God because no one could do the kind of stuff you're doing unless they were from God. And Jesus doesn't even entertain that. He just immediately cuts to the heart of the issue, right? Do you notice that it's a weird thing to respond to somebody who says to you, hey, you seem to be a pretty good dude. And then you respond, let me tell you how to get into the kingdom of God. That's a left turn in the conversation. Jesus doesn't mince words. So Nicodemus comes to offer flattery, perhaps a little bit of like, hey, are you, who are you, where are you? And Jesus is not, gonna, not going to get into a verbal, like, let me prove to you that I am who I am. He's just going to say, let's talk about the kingdom. And let's talk about how one enters the kingdom. By virtue of using this language of new birth, Jesus says that getting into the kingdom has everything to do with what God does in you, not what you do for him. It has everything to do with what God does in you. There's an internal work that is necessary to get into the kingdom of God. And for Nicodemus, that's mind-altering. Because he's thinking to himself, if I am faithful for long enough, I will enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, you can be faithful for as long as you want to obeying a set of rules, and it will not get you into the kingdom. Because something has to happen in here first. The other thing that's probably terrifying for Nicodemus is when Jesus says, you must be born again, does anyone control their own birth? He's saying that it's under God's control whether or not you are born again. It's a work of the Spirit and not one that you can dictate to God. He dictates it to you. And you respond. And that's frightening for Nicodemus. Because he doesn't know what to do with that. The first thing that we see when Jesus starts talking about this idea of being born again is that he's saying that it means our salvation is worked by God and not by us. And can I just tell you, friends, that your service to God, that we live on a razor's edge sometimes as Christians. 
where we serve God and want to be faithful to serving him, but we can so quickly fall over into justifying ourselves before God with the things that we do for him. Where instead of knowing that we're justified by grace alone through faith alone, we really, truly, functionally come to God and say, look at all that I have done for you. Right? When things go bad in your life, here's a great question to take into your time with the Lord. When things go bad in my life, do I say to God, how could you let this happen? Look at all that I've done for you. That's someone who's justifying themselves by what they've done for God. When we know that we're justified by grace through faith alone, God owes us nothing. He doesn't owe us, doesn't owe sparing us from suffering. He doesn't owe us delivering us from difficulty. He may very well do that because he's loving and good, but he may not always. And when he doesn't, he doesn't owe it to us to do that. I find in my own life that I, I, walking that razor's edge sometimes and saying, am I in any way, Lord, justifying myself by what I'm doing? Or am I, do I know that I am justified only by what you have done, that you brought about a new birth in me and it's not something that I have done for you. Everything I've done is a response to that new birth that's come about. And can I just tell you, friends, that if you serve God as a way of justifying yourself before him, you will find that your service will always like power and it will always like passion. You, there, will be, there will be heavy limits on your power and on your passion because serving to justify always runs out of steam faster than serving because you know you've been justified. The endurance that's available to you, the power that's available to you to serve him will grow exponentially when you do it knowing that your justification does not come by your works. The first thing that this language, born again, reminds us is that it is God who works our salvation and we respond to him. The second thing, and this is probably the the one we need to kind of get into the nitty-gritty details here a little bit with. Can we do that? Is that okay? Awesome is this, being born again means being cleansed and renewed. Being born again means being cleansed and renewed. If you have your sermon notes, that's point number two on there. Now here's why I say that. In verse three, Jesus said, unless someone is born again, they cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Another way to translate born again is born from above. In other words, it's a birth that happens brought down from above, from heaven. But then he goes on when Nicodemus says, how is this possible Like, how can someone enter into their mother's womb and be born a second time? Jesus goes a little further and explaining, and he says this in verse 5. Look at it with me. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. So he's saying, you can't enter the kingdom of God unless you're born again, and then he says you must be born of water and the Spirit. So what he's doing there is he's explaining with this phrase, water and the Spirit, he's explaining born again. Do you see that? He's defining it for us. He's putting some meat on the bones for us. And he's saying, oh, you want to know what born again means? I'll tell you what it means. It means being born of water and the Spirit. And now you're thinking, well, now I get it. It's perfectly plain and clear. We're good. Let me tell you. So historically, some people have taken this to mean that what Jesus is talking about when he talks about water is he's talking about baptism. That that's a part of your salvation. And, the other, and then when he's talking about spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit coming in and living in you. I don't think that's true. And I'll tell you why for two reasons. One, baptism is a big deal, but it doesn't save you. And the reason why Jesus is not talking about baptism here is at least two things. Number one, Nicodemus would not have understood baptism as a reference. It's not something that was practiced. Christian baptism wasn't a thing 
And so he would not have understood. So for Jesus to clarify something Nicodemus needed clarified by referring to something Nicodemus wouldn't have understood would not make a lot of sense. The second thing is that the context, the root of Jesus' words here is Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25, 26, and 27. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He knows the law and he knows the prophets. So he would immediately understand, which is why his next question is not, hey, I don't understand. His next question is, how can these things be in verse 9? Right? What he's saying is this, is, this is heavy stuff, essentially. This is kind of too big for me to, to take in what you're saying here. But in Ezekiel 36, I'm not going to give you all, don't worry, I'm not going to give you all the weeds of the details, Okay? But here's Ezekiel 36. It's a famous prophetic passage. And in it, Ezekiel talks about what's going to happen when the new covenant is brought into into effect, when Jesus comes and brings a new covenant for us. And he says, I will replace my people, I will replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh. And I will sprinkle you clean with water. In Ezekiel 36, water is representative of cleansing, of making clean. Right? And in Ezekiel 36, the Spirit is representing new life, it's being renewed. So that's why when we look at Jesus and he refers to water and the Spirit, he's not talking about baptism and the indwelling Spirit. He's talking about kind of one work in two parts, if you will, where the Spirit, when it makes you born again, the Spirit comes in and it does a cleansing work and it does a renewing work. That's what it means to be born again, to be cleansed and to be renewed. Are you with me? Okay, awesome, fantastic. So let me kind of illustrate that point for you a little bit. Uh, I, I've just sat with this this week, and I tried to think to myself, how do we, how do we sort of really get what, is this, what the Spirit is doing in a person? Because this is what it means to be a Christian. To be born again, to be a Christian is to be born again. And being born again means being born of water and the Spirit, And being born of water and the Spirit means being cleansed and being renewed. It's an internal work that takes place. That 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 is what makes you saved. You are not saved by saying a prayer. You are saved when the Spirit regenerates your soul from death to life. When you are born of water and the Spirit. Now, here's what I imagine. I have not had this moment in life but I've had plenty of friends who have. If you've ever had health issues and you've gone to the doctor and they, they're running some tests and they're tests for serious things. It's in the head cold. And then at the end of those tests, they say, we'll get back to you at the end of the week. That's the worst week of your life, right? Where you're sitting there and you're waiting and there's this weight and it's oppressive and it is on you. And you're just thinking, I just, I just gotta get to, I just need to know the answer and it's so heavy and it's so weighty and you maybe have a few moments of breaking down during the week and then Friday comes and the doctor calls and says the results of the test are in and you are good, clean bill of health. In that moment, how do you feel? Light, right? Like the weight of the world has been lifted off your shoulders. You would dance a jig, right? If you could dance and maybe you can't, I don't know. Right? But you, you feel like you could jump over a building. When the scriptures say you are born of water, it's talking about the cleansing work of the Spirit inside you, which takes away all your guilt. The weight of your guilt has been lifted off of you by the regenerating work of the Spirit in your soul. Do you know that? 
The guilt has been removed. It's been taken away. Whatever you feel in that moment when the doctor calls you and says, you're healthy, it's okay, there's nothing wrong. You're gonna be fine. And that weight lifts off. Can you feel that moment a little bit? Multiply that by 1,000, by 10,000, by 100,000 because the weight of your sin and guilt has been lifted off of you. That's what it means to be washed. That's what it means to be, um, sorry, born, in, born of water here in John chapter three. Now, the question then for us is, do you feel that? If you've been born of water in the spirit, then you have experienced the lifting of your guilt off of you. I mean, somebody say amen to that. And I wonder, do you experience that? As your pastor, I want to know if you experience that. I want to know if you know that your guilt has been taken away. Because if you don't, I'm concerned. I'm concerned for you if you have not felt the lifting of your guilt. Concerned about what that means. Could it mean that you've prayed a prayer, but you've never experienced the work of the Spirit? Being born again. The second thing, the two-part work here that the Spirit does when it comes in, to be born again is to be born of water and the Spirit. And when he talks about being born of the Spirit, he's saying that there is a renewing work, not just a cleansing, guilt removed, but a being made something new, being renewed from old to new. Now, we talk about this quite a bit at church, but the primary expression of being made new when the Spirit comes in and you were born of water and the Spirit is that you have a fundamentally new set of desires, right? Later on in the passage, he says, here's the verdict, here's the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the world what? Love the light? No, the world loved darkness and rejected the light because its deeds were evil. And those who work evil don't come to the light. In other words, what he's saying, the primary desire and disposition of a person prior to the born-again work, the being born again in the Spirit, is towards darkness. But now, fundamentally, if the Spirit has come into you and you've been born again, your fundamental desire is towards righteousness and light. Now, I know some of you will say, but Trent, I still experience like these desires for things that are not righteous. And I get it. Romans 7 is really helpful for us there. Romans 7, verse 19 and 20, what does Paul say? He says, I do the things I don't desire to do. And in doing that, I bear witness, Paul says, that it's not actually me who does that, but, the, but sin in me. Now, is Paul acting like sin is somehow not his and that's not part of it? No. What Paul is saying is, my primary desire, the thing I really want to do is righteousness and good. And yet there is still this hanging on part of me that is sin, that still does move towards darkness, still does move towards a lack of righteousness. But that's not how Paul sees himself as someone whose primary disposition and desire is darkness and evil and and sin. He now knows, right? Because what is he saying? The thing I don't want to do, I do. Right? The thing I want to do, I don't do. What he's saying is my primary desire has been changed because I've been born again. I've been born of water, cleansed from guilt, and I've been born of the Spirit, renewed with new desires. I find Romans 7 incredibly helpful there when I think about the turmoil in my own soul over what I desire and what I don't desire and my 
predisposition at times, it feels like towards darkness, but I know that if I've been born again, my primary disposition is towards light, not darkness. So then the question comes to us again, do we experience that? If we've been born again, we experience a renewed desire. I saw that on display when I was in Jordan uh, the last two weeks, and I just, it was so remarkable. You know, when, the, when war broke out in Syria in 2012, Jordan is a neighboring country, and the war broke out just a few miles from the border with Jordan, and so refugees uh, just flooded into Jordan. And Mafrak, the town where we partner with this church, now the Syrian refugees outnumber the Jordanians by tens of thousands. And this little church full of believers who were already a minority in their own country, in their beliefs, and already persecuted by their own countrymen for their own beliefs, are welcoming refugees by the thousands and caring for them because they love Jesus. And he said, love your neighbor. And they said, okay, you're bringing our neighbor to us. We will care for them. It's absolutely astounding. Do you think that their fundamental desire before they knew the Lord was to care for people who are not their people? Do you think their fundamental desire was to say, yeah, let's at great expense of time and cost and energy and money, let's care for these folks who we don't know, have never met, and who don't share our faith? I highly doubt it. But the Spirit has given new desires. And I watched it on display in our brothers and sisters. God is on the move through them and in them. It's remarkable. It's absolutely, stunningly remarkable. I was blown away and humbled and thought to myself, I need more of this in my life. Men and women just teaching me, instructing me through their love and actions towards these refugees. Most powerful moment of the trip for me, one I'll never forget, I don't say that lightly, but it's burned in my brain, was going into a refugee home of refugees. It was a Muslim home, two wives, 17 kids, next to no money, and the church continues to visit and support them and, and share the gospel with them. And we're sitting there, and two of the older, one of the older boys really wants to connect with me, I can tell right away. And he's got a phone, actually he borrowed a teammate's phone, uh, who could do translate, Google Translate from Arabic to English. And so, you know, we're doing great questions, like what's your favorite color, back and forth, you know? Uh, what town are you from? And we're just trying to do, we're just kind of getting to know each other. And he just so wants to connect with me, and just a sweet kid. And then his cousin shows up, and his cousin speaks a little English. And so we're talking back and forth. And then our translator says, hey, Trent, why don't you tell a Bible story? Why don't you just tell the whole family a Bible story? I said, great. And so we've got these two women and all these kids, in particular these two boys, these teenage boys. And I, I, I felt led by the Spirit to tell the story from Mark 9, where Jesus heals the boy that the disciples couldn't heal. That uh, had the demonic spirit and it would throw him in the fire and throw him in the water. I just wanted him to see the love of Jesus for a little boy. That's all I wanted him to see, the love of Jesus for a little boy. So I started telling the story. I said, you know, this boy, he had a bad spirit and his father was desperate and he needed, he, he needed Jesus' help. And the, the spirit would throw the boy in the fire and would throw him in the water. It would try and really hurt him. The translator's translating, and the 16-year-old boy, his eyes are white. He, remember, they've never heard this story, ever in their lives. And they're listening. And he looks at me and he goes, can Jesus do it? It hit me like a thunderbolt. I said, oh, my friend, wait and see. 
I got to tell the rest of the story. His kids were awestruck. You could have picked their jaws up off the floor because they'd never heard of one to whom every spirit was subject, one who can rescue and redeem. You can pray with me for Hamid. Pray for me. Pray with me for Hamid. All of that is possible because of a church that has said our desires have been fundamentally changed because the Spirit has come in and we are born again. That's what the Spirit does. The next thing that we see that being born again means, a little less time on these now. The third thing is that being born again means being misunderstood. Look at verses seven and eight. I love this because he says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. Now, remember, this is before meteorology, right? There was no weatherman on the news channel saying, hey, the wind's coming out of the southwest today, and it's originating out of this place or that place, and then it's going to go here. They didn't have any of that. So the wind's a big mystery. Where is this coming from, and where is it going? And Jesus uses that as an illustration. Now, whenever I'd read this verse in the past, I used to think that what Jesus was saying was the work of the Spirit is mysterious, right? It's an internal, unseen work that he can cause someone to be renewed, that he can take their guilt off of them. You don't see those things in the physical realm. They're spiritual realities. So there's a mystery to them. Would you agree? But then I realized that that's actually not what he's saying here. That's true, but it's not what he's saying because what he says is this. He says, you don't know where the wind comes from or where it goes. So it is, not just with the Spirit, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What did he just say? If you are born again, if you're born of the Spirit, you will be a bit of a mystery to those who are not born of the Spirit. You will be a bit of a conundrum. People will interact with you and they will misunderstand you. They won't understand why you're motivated by what you're motivated by. They won't understand why you do what you do with your money. They won't understand why you do what you do with your time. That you will be a bit of a mystery. You will be a bit misunderstood. Now, can I say to my younger brothers and sisters, and I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean to pick on you, but I, I observe this, all right? My younger brothers and sisters, I have great concern for you as your pastor because one of the things I see is this, I have this sense that you want faith in Jesus that doesn't cause you to stand out or, or look different from the rest of your peers. That you want to see if you can't walk with Jesus and still kind of be accepted among your peers. I have a concern that that's a pursuit that you're after. And I may be wrong if I'm wrong. I, I praise God that I am wrong. But if I'm not, I just want to encourage you to hear the word of God. To be born again is to be misunderstood. It's to be weird. It's to be odd. Years ago, I had a friend. I was in his wedding, uh, and he was in mine. He was a younger guy, and I'd invested in him, discipled him. And he, was, he meant to pay me a compliment. He really and truly did, and I can't say exactly what he meant by this. Uh, but he said, he shared with me one time, he said, I'm, I'm thankful for you, Trent, because you're the first Christian I met that was cool. Well, one, he was absolutely wrong, because I've never been cool. No one's ever, that's not something anyone's said about me until him. And he meant it as a compliment, but do you know when he said it, how I felt? I actually felt really discouraged because I thought, I don't want to be cool. I, haven't, I don't want to be cool. What does that mean? What does it mean that someone thinks I'm cool? It, does that mean I've actually not followed Jesus in the way I'm supposed to follow him? Because I'm not supposed to be cool. 
right? It's supposed to be weird and misunderstood and odd. I'm supposed to be offensive at points. I'm supposed to be known for being loving for sure. And that should be winsome. But probably no one should ever call me cool. So may no one ever call you cool. To be born again is to be misunderstood. And by the way, my young brothers and sisters, look, I say that because when I interact with our older brothers and sisters, they don't seem to care that much what people think. Right? Like I've been on the road when they're driving and they definitely don't care what people think. At least it doesn't seem that way. Number four, being born again means having access to deeper spiritual truth. It means having access to deeper spiritual truth. Look at verse 12. I love this. It says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe them, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? Okay, so what are the earthly things he's talking about? Well, it's what he just shared with Nicodemus that confused him. It's being born again. It's an earthly reality. It's spiritual, yes, but it happens where? Here on earth. And so when he says, if you don't understand this, Nicodemus, how are you going to understand heavenly things? In other words, understanding what it means to be born again is a gateway. It's a door into deeper understanding of heavenly things. And I love that because what does that mean? If I am born again, it means I now have access to deeper spiritual truth to walk in greater access to wisdom, greater understanding of the ways of God, and being born again is the door that grants me access into those realities, into those understandings. That's so good, right? You follow me? What a good gift that is. If you're born again, if you've been born of the Spirit, if you've been born of water, right, as Jesus defines it, then what he's saying is, oh, you have access to heavenly knowledge, says the same thing essentially in Romans chapter 8 when he says those who are of the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh but those who are of the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. And what he's saying is if the spirit of God dwells in you, this is Paul writing to the Romans, the spirit of God dwells in you, then you have the ability to put your mind on, on the things of the spirit to understand things that the spirit is doing and how he's moving and where he's going and how he's convicting. You follow that? This is a great gift. To be born again means to to in some part, to be able to understand the mind of God in ways that you could not before. Wow. Final thing that we see in this text is that being born again means being, uh, being born again means receiving God's love in Christ through faith. Now, listen, here's why I say that. that. That may seem really obvious. Being born again means receiving God's love in Christ through faith. The most famous verse in the Bible. For God so what? Loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Now listen, when you hear that, a couple things that really give the, the punch of that verse. And we need to remember that this verse has punch. Because if you've heard it a lot, you might think it doesn't have punch anymore. But it has incredible punch, okay? This verse outpunches its weight by a lot, Right? And the key words for the punch it's delivering are these words, loved, world, only, and believe. Those words, for God so loved the world. Have you ever, for those of you who have kids, have you ever, like, when they turned into teenagers, did, did it seem like they weren't able to get that you loved them anymore? 
I hear that from time to time. It's like I've got my kids and I just, I can't squeeze them hard enough. You know what I mean? It's like I can't get my love communicated to them enough. I want to say it and say it and say it. I want to squeeze them so tight that they get it. And yet it still doesn't seem like it's enough to actually get them to understand how much I love them. And then I know they're going to get older. And at some point they're going to act like I, they're going to like have a hard time getting that I love them. We're not unlike that. It's not It's not evident that we would understand that God loves us. But when you're born again, the Spirit communicates God's love to you. So that there's actually a vehicle by which you can believe that you're loved. And don't you know that believing you're loved by God, if you are born again, that believing you are loved by God is the absolute fundamental key to every other aspect of your life. Believing you are loved by God will save your marriage. Believing you are loved by God will guide you as a parent. Believing you are loved by God will make you a great friend. Not believing you're loved by God will lead to destruction in all of those areas and many more. The second thing in this verse that causes it to really punch above its weight is when he says, for God so loved the world. And when we hear that, we tend to hear it as the idea of, wow, God's love is pretty great because it's really broad. But the thing that you need to understand is that that's not how John is using that term. For John, every time John uses the word world, it's always negative. John does not have a good, uh, he doesn't have a good opinion of the world. Everywhere else, it's don't be like the world. Don't love the world. It's don't, don't participate in the ways of the world. The world for John is the place of judgment. It's the place where darkness reigns. It's not the place that loves God. And so when he says, for God so loves the world, he wants you to be amazed, not because God's love is so broad, because God's love is directed towards those who are so bad. That's what he wants you to see. For God so loves the world is earth shattering because these are not a group of people who should be loved because they are bad to the core, is John's idea. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, not one of six, and he had one to spare. He gave his only son. What a treasure, John wants you to understand, this gift is, that whoever not serves him faithfully, but whoever what? Believes. God's love, if you are born again, God's love makes its way to you so that you can receive it and respond to it. That's part of what it means to be born again. So we come to the table now. I'll ask our servers to come.